All right, let's go. Let's go ahead and start with a uh, sermon with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Gracious Heavenly Father, we now come to you uh, at the climax of our service where we want to worship you in spirit and truth through the proclamation of your word, the hearing of your word, uh, by the testing of our hearts and our attitudes. Uh, Lord, we know that this is the time where there's a great spiritual battle taking place in each of our hearts and our minds. We ask that you remove all unbelief from our hearts, any doubt, any bitterness or anger, resentment that we may have against another person. Remove all the cares of this world from our minds right now that may be infiltrating our minds. Anything that may be a distraction, O oh Lord, we ask that you remove it so our hearts and our minds can be fully devoted to you. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our God, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, beloved church. Today is October 11, 2020. October 11. And it was seven months ago, on March 11, 2020, that the WHO, the World Health Organization, declared COVID-19 a pandemic. Seven months ago, it's already been. Shortly thereafter, March 13, the United States of America, um, our president of the United States of America declared COVID-19 a national emergency. You remember that in March? Everyone's panicking, buying toilet paper and stuff like that. Shortly thereafter, we had shelter in place and quarantines immediately mandated across the US. In fact, on March 19th, our beautiful state of California was the very first US state to issue a mandate order, a staying home, a stay at home mandate order. We're the first state. That was seven months ago. And in these past seven months, you know, we're always talking to each other. What have you been doing? What have you been doing? I don't know about every single one of you, but many of you, like myself, if you're like me, we've been given a lot of opportunities to watch the movies that you've always wanted to watch, right? Have you, have you guys watched more movies this past seven months than you've had probably in your entire college career? <laughs> what movies have you been watching this past seven months? Movies are simply stories put in film in live action. And who doesn't like a good movie to watch with your loved one or with your friends? Who doesn't like a good story portrayed in a movie? Now, if I were to ask each one of you, if I were to ask each one of you, what are the three basic elements that make a good story, that make a good movie? We could argue all day what, what makes a good story in a movie, right? Especially those of you who are writers, book lovers, film lovers, well, I searched on good old Google and she told me often I found that the three good elements that make a good story in a book or a movie are characters, conflict, and the cure for the conflict or resolution. We have good characters, a good plot with a conflict, and then of course resolution. Some movies don't even have a resolution, it just has a bad ending. But what makes a good story? What do you look for when you want to watch a good movie? Now, if you remember the last, uh, last sermon from last week, we started a sermon series <clears throat> about lessons on faith. And we're talking about uh, the parable of Jesus Christ, but not just any parable. It's the very first parable. And if you remember, parables are simple stories. They're earthly stories 
with mundane things, everyday things. And these parables, they don't have glorious characters in it. They don't have crazy conflicts with amazing cures and amazing heroic endings that end these stories. I mean, these parables contain everyday mundane life activities, everyday common people in it with everyday conflicts. There's not so much about these parables. However, when you read these parables again and again and again, and if you understand them and you hear them, what the, what the author truly intended them to portray and how they ought to be understood, these parables, these mundane stories can be and will be life-giving and life-changing. They have monumental effects on your life. Parables are simple earthly stories that are used to portray awesome and profound special truths. I like that word profound. Thank you for using that in your prayer, Brother Daniel, Brother Dan. Profound. These have some profound elements of spiritual truths in these simple stories. If you haven't already, turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at this parable. Uh, I'm going to read the first nine verses uh, in this parable. This parable is often called the parable of the soils. It's often called the parable of the sower. It's often called the parable of the seed. But primarily, primarily, the teaching is about four different soils. We covered that last, last week. And if you missed last week's sermon, these four different soils represent four different hearts. Four different ways. The only four possible ways that you can respond to God's word. And in this morning, I'd like to take a good look at three important elements of this beautiful parable. That makes this parable absolutely profound, absolutely amazing. In fact, these three elements of this parable, beloved, make this parable the most important parable of all the other parables that Jesus taught. He taught about 39, 40 parables. Jesus said it himself in verse 13. How can you understand all the other parables if you do not understand this one? So my prayer this morning, beloved church, is that we will take a closer look at three important elements of this amazing story, of this amazing parable, so that we'll marvel at the kingdom of God and be motivated to obey the word of God, okay? And this past seven months, we've all been feeling bogged down, no more motivation, no more exuberance over the word of God or prayer. Everything's meh, sappy, bland. I'm speaking from experience. So this is my desire for us this morning, that we take a look at just three elements of this beautiful parable so that we will be on fire again for the Lord, for the kingdom of heaven, motivated to obey the word, motivated to pray together on Tuesday nights. So I want us to do this. What are these three elements of this parable that we look at today? First, I want us to look at the first element is the prepared soil. That's the fourth and the good soil, right? We talked about that last week. We're going to look, go in the depth of what that looks like today. No pun intended. It's called the prepared soil because it is well prepared to receive the word of God. Secondly, I'd like to, for us to take a look, a closer look at <clears throat> the powerful seed. That's the word of God. That's the metaphor here. Third, I'd like for us to take a look at the sower, the one who scatters the seed everywhere. That's called the patient sower. 
So those are the three that we'll look at this morning. The prepared soil, the powerful seed, and the patient sower. Let me read these first, just the first nine verses. It says, again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat, it, sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some of them fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Others fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Verse seven, other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the living God. Now, let me tell you, my friends, there's so much truth in this parable alone that I suppose we could have a dozen, 20 more sermons just explaining the nuances of this beautiful parable. So by no means are we exhausting this parable in just two sermons, okay? Last week, we discussed how each of these four soils represent a different heart, right? How each heart, uh, these, each soil responds differently to the word of God. And these four responses are the only four possible ways to respond to the word of God. That's basically... Here, let's see here. This is the title of our sermon, by the way. The soil, the seed, and the soil. The sower. Now let's review quickly these four soils. The first soil is the roadside soil. It is the soil with basically a hard surface. The seed falls on it. It doesn't sink in. It's a hard heart. It's a heart full of unbelief. It thinks the word of God is a waste of time, or perhaps there's, it's blinded by pride. It's refusing to receive the truths the word of God. Secondly, we have the rocky soil. It's a superficial heart. It's not rooted in the truth. These are people professing to be Christians, where in fact they are not Christians because their faith is not rooted in the word of God. Well, where is their faith rooted in? It's rooted superficially in emotions and experiences, Christian experiences. And then in, when the trials of life come, it will expose their superficial faith. For they will not be able to handle the trials of these uh, tribulations because they are not rooted in the word. They are highly emotional people, unstable in all their ways, because their faith is rooted in circumstances which are, un are unstable. And when the circumstances changes and storms and life come upon them, they panic, they get easily depressed, they get easily angered, they have shallow joy, they have shallow faith. They eventually fall away. They disappear from the church for a while. Maybe they don't come back. That is, they will abandon the faith because there's never any root in the word of God. And then the third, the weed-infested soil. Wow. This soil represents the distracted heart that is preoccupied with the cares of the world. Remember, it is all the busyness and the deceitfulness of riches that choke the word of God in this particular heart. The soil is, is, 
is the heart that's too busy for the word of God. It's so busy with the things of this world, so many activities with family and friends, so many hobbies, so many possessions, so, many, so much materialism, so many possessions that you are just preoccupied maintaining them. Got to fix this. I got to do that. I got an appointment over here. Therefore, you have no time for the word of God, no time for church, no time for Sunday gathering, no time for fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ during the week, no time for disciple making, no time for quiet time and prayer, no time for the kingdom of God. Nothing. The word of God is completely choked out of your life. And Jesus says you are proven to be unfruitful. Jesus says in verse 19, beloved, he says, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. These people, they make a promising start to all outward appearances. They seem to be true believers, but then they become preoccupied with busyness, worldly worries, with the lust to become rich and to to get more and to get more and more possessions. They lose interest in all spiritual things until they finally abandon any claim to be Christians at all. And eventually there's nothing about Christian about them. Well, at this point in the parable, we've seen three bad soils, haven't we? They all pretty much sum up and represent the lifestyle, the lifestyle of the unsaved, those who truly never get saved. Now, earlier this week, I ran into you or talked to some of you, and some of you asked me a good question. You said, Pastor Stephen, is it possible that Christians can also respond to the word of God in the first three cases that we saw with the hard soil, the rocky soil, right? And the, and the shallow, and the, the one with the thorns. And I say absolutely with a resounding yes. True Christians at times, we can be stubborn and stiff-necked Blinded by our pride, we where the word of God will not penetrate our hearts, like the first soil, the hard soil. True Christians, at times, we can be misguided by our emotions, and we can make terrible decisions in our lives entirely based on our emotions rather than the word of God. Trusting in our emotions rather than the word of God. That's the second soil. And thirdly, true Christians are, not, are definitely not immune to the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches like those in the third soil. However, for the true Christian beloved, any of these circumstances is not a permanent state. Let me say that again. It is not a permanent state if you are a true Christian, if you find yourself behaving like any of the first three soils. It is not a permanent condition. There will be perseverance in your life. There will be repentance. Yes, repentance is a fruit of a person's salvation. Repentance is not a one-time thing where you initially come to Christ for salvation. It is a lifetime thing. Here we are in October. Uh, October 31st is the end of this month, the Protestant Reformation. And if you remember the significance of that day when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the, on the church door of Wittenberg, do you remember what the first thesis, thesis uh, the first statement he wrote of the 95? I'll paraphrase it. But basically he says that all true believers are marked with continual repentance in their lives. That is a, 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 a fruit, an evidence that you're, you're, you're saved. So you see, if you find yourself angry and not receiving the word of God, maybe you're busy, preoccupied with the cares of the world, you know, and don't fret. Don't doubt your salvation. 
Of course, examine your heart, but persevere, repent. The cure for those things, if you're a true believer, is repentance. Repentance. But I think the main idea of this message of this parable, when Jesus talks about these four soils, Jesus is essentially talking about a permanent state, a permanent condition. If you find yourself in any of the first three situations, beloved, and you're professing to be a Christian, I tell you, repent. Turn away from your sins and turn to Christ. Run to Christ in the cross. Ask him for forgiveness. You can boldly approach the throne of grace so that you may receive mercy and grace to help you in the time of need. That's in Hebrews. What a beautiful promise. Now, let me ask you, beloved, what is the common denominator in these first three soils? We have some math teachers here, Teach, uh, Sister Yvonne and Sister Elizabeth and my wife. You're, you're all math teachers. What is the common denominator in these first three soils? Hmm. We have the hard soil, the rocky soil, and the weed-infested soil. What is their common denominator? What is the common problem? And the answer, in every case of all three, it is a depth problem. It is a depth problem. The first soil doesn't produce any life because the seed doesn't go in at all. The second soil does not produce life because it doesn't go in deep enough. And then we have the third seed. Well, interestingly enough, it goes in pretty deep, but it goes in at the same level as the weed and the thorns. Again, we have a depth problem. In every single case of these three soils, beloved, the gospel does not go in deep enough. Now, the fourth soil, the fourth soil, like I said, I like to call it the prepared soil or the well-prepared soil. It is well-prepared, ready to receive the word of God. This fourth soil is notably different from the first three soils. Now, here's the difference, okay? And listen to me, cut to the chase here. This soil bears fruit. This one bears fruit. This soil, this heart, it receives the word of God and its life is conformed to the gospel. It embraces the gospel and therefore it will bear fruit. James chapter 1, verse 21 tells us, it commands us to receive the word of God that has been implanted in you with meekness. Another word for that word meekness is humility. This is a humble heart, beloved. Only a humble heart can receive the word of God. It is only a humble heart that is prepared to receive the word of God. It is prepared soil because it is not hard. It is soft, meaning it is receptive to the word of God. Thirdly, it is well prepared. It is a prepared soil because it is not overtaken by weeds and thorns, by the cares of this world. It is not overtaken by the cares of the world and the riches of the world. Now, remember, it's not wrong to have the things of this world. It is not wrong to have riches of this world. It is not wrong to be a very busy person. I'm very busy. You're all very busy. We have lots of things. It becomes wrong when you let your busyness and your riches choke out the word of God in your life. So this prepared soil, it receives the wonderful word of God and therefore it bears fruit. And my dear friends, it is the presence of fruit, not necessarily the quantity of fruit. Okay. It is the presence of the fruit that matters. If there's no fruit in the person's life, then there's no genuine saving faith. There's no salvation. No faith ever took root in the gospel. It never took root in the word of God. There's no fruit. There's no root. That's basically what James is talking about. 
in, in James chapter 1 and 2. There's no fruit. There's no root. When the word of God truly sinks into a person's heart, when the heart truly accepts the word of God, just like every seed that falls into a good soil, there will be fertility. There will be germination. There will be growth. How do we know? Because there will be signs of new life. My wife and my kids, and well, I can't take credit. They're planting a nice garden in the backyard. We just started and we prepared a nice soil. And my wife is teaching me on this stuff. I, I'm not any kind of gardener by any means. I just do the lawn and that's it. But my wife's telling me, you got to keep the, the soil nice, free from rocks. Well, I knew that. But she says, you got to keep it warm. You got to water every day. Not too much sun. You got to put it in the shade. I'm like, wow, I can't wait to see life. I can't wait to see signs of new life. And this new life, spiritually speaking, it causes the person, when you have a new life, beloved, when you hear the word of God, when your heart is humble and it receives the word, when there's new life, it causes you to make a clean, clear break of the old life of sin. I'll say it again. We like to look at people who have professed to be Christians, right? But then they're back out in their sin. What is that? We might say, well, they're backslidden Christians. You know, they're out of God's will. You ever heard that expression before? We call them carnal Christians. Carnal from the word carne, meaning meat, flesh. They're living in the flesh. You know, this guy's married. He's, he, he used to be a deacon in the church, but now he's living with another woman for at least a year now. What's going on? Oh, he's just a carnal Christian. Well, there's a wrong definition going around of what a carnal Christian really is. People use that term carnal Christian as if it's a permanent condition. The people in the church used to teach that there were three kinds of people. The natural person, the carnal person, and the spiritual person. Let me go over this really quickly to make uh, an important distinction here. They would define the natural person as unregenerate, meaning unsaved. They have self on the throne. It's obvious. They're not worshiping God. They're not following him. They never profess Christ as, as Lord and Savior. Then there's the carnal person. Now, what's that? Well, they say that's the Christian. You know, they profess Christ as Lord. But this Christian is sitting on his own throne. Christ is still in there somewhere running around. But he's not in charge of their life. And the life is still in chaos. So the only difference between a natural and a carnal person is that Christ is in there somewhere, but the life hasn't changed. And then thirdly, there's the, the spiritual Christian. Self is off the throne. Christ is on the throne and life is all in order. And so people came up with the idea that you could be either a carnal Christian or a spiritual Christian. You know, once, you, you know, once you're saved, you can say, well, I'm going to stay carnal Christian. I like it better. You know, that brings in the whole idea of lordship salvation, the issue of lordship salvation. Because there are so many people who, are, who accepted Jesus as Lord, but not as Savior. A Savior, but not as Lord. You hear that? You know, you accept Jesus into your life. And they say, all right, I want a Savior. I want someone to save me from hell, from this terrible life. But I don't want him as Lord. And that old definition of a carnal Christian was a person who believed in Jesus for salvation, but he didn't let Christ rule in his life as Lord. Beloved, that's not what a carnal Christian is, biblically speaking. Let me tell you what it is. There are only two kinds of people in this world. 
And I know last week I told you there are four kinds of people in this world, the four soils, right? Essentially, ultimately, there are only two kinds of people in this world. This parable is teaching, ultimately, Jesus is teaching that there are two kinds of people in this world. The first three soils are the, are, are the, are the unbelievers, and then the last soil is the believer, right? Two kinds of people in this world. We have the saints, and we have the ain'ts. Let me go over here. There it is. The saints and the ain'ts. Which one are you? We have the Christians, the non-Christians, the believers, and the unbelievers. Now, going back to the theory where some churches teach that there are three kinds of people, the natural, the carnal, and the spiritual. Now, listen, the natural man, the natural woman is the unsaved, the unborn again. The spiritual man is the regenerate man, is the regenerate woman. These people are born again spiritually. Read Romans chapter 8 about that. The spiritual person can act in a fleshly way. There's still sin dwelling in us. Anytime you, debit, anytime you disobey the Lord, anytime you commit sin, anytime we commit sin, we are carnal. We are being fleshly. Anytime you obey the Lord, you are spiritual. Anytime you do, do what you ought not to do, you're carnal. That's what it means when you're carnal. It means you're operating off the principle of sin. So carnality is not a permanent state of Christians who have not given Christ lordship. Carnality is simply a momentary experience of the believer who's being disobedient to God. So it's, a, it's simply a kind of behavior. So the point is every Christian will have sinful moments. And in those moments, they will be a carnal Christian. So every Christian acts carnal. However, since carnality is not a permanent state, they will bear fruit. That's the point. You see a man, he professes to be a Christian. You say he's a carnal Christian. He's been living with another lady that's not his wife. Uh, I don't think he can bear fruit. He hasn't been bearing fruit. You see, they will bear fruit. Well, so the question that comes to mind is, what does this fruit look like? What does this fruit look like? Well, let's back up a little bit. What is fruit? Fruit is the byproduct of plant growth, right? It's that sweet, usually it's sweet, sweet and fleshy product of a plant. Now, I like mangoes. I love mangoes. In fact, the sweetest and best mangoes, the best tasting mangoes on earth that I've ever tasted are from the Philippines. I'm not saying that because I'm Filipino. I'd say that if I was French. The best tasting mangoes are from the Philippines. Fruit is a product of plant growth, right? Mangoes, you see avocados, apples, everything. They're evidence of life. Time and time again, the word fruit appears in New Testament scripture. I encourage you to do a word study on that word fruit. It is used as a symbol to identify a person that they have a new life in Christ, that they have been born again, that they are truly saved. Take, for example, in Galatians chapter 5, let me move over here. I'm moving faster than my slide, my slideshow here. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And in the Philippians 1, chapter 11, it talks about being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Christ. Righteousness meaning you do godly things. You're doing which is that which is pleasing to God. You're obeying his word. And likewise, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we are created, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus 
with good works. That good works there, beloved, is fruit in the life of a true Christian. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, it says, let us continue to offer up a sacrifice to praise, of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. In other words, lips that continually give uh, praise to God is the fruit of salvation. It is a product of salvation. It is evidence of salvation. What other fruit or evidences are of salvation are there, you may ask? Now, I want to mention a list of things. Things, first of all, that do not prove someone's salvation. They can be mistakenly used to prove someone's salvation. Okay? Now, I got these from MacArthur's study Bible. If you have it, you can get it from the back of your study Bible. But take a look at these really quick. Evidences that neither prove or disprove someone's faith. They have visible morality in their life. You say, look at that person. They don't lie. They don't cheat on their taxes. They don't cheat on their spouse. They don't do drugs. They don't get drunk. They're honest and upright citizens. They help the old lady, the old man cross the street. But having good morals is not a fruit of salvation. A lot of people who reject Jesus as Messiah, a lot of people who reject the word of God, they have good morals and they're not saved. Hmm. What about intellectual knowledge? Someone who knows a lot of scripture and they can teach it. Well, beloved, hello, the Pharisees. They knew the Old Testament scripture, the Torah. They knew it very well, but they were absolutely deceived and blinded by their pride. They were not saved. What about religious involvement? Someone who's involved in all the, the Sunday activities, the weekly activities, they come to every prayer meeting, they come to every MCG, they come to every every ministry that's, that takes place. That does That's not a fruit. That's probably someone, that could be just someone looking for socialization. No offense to those of us who attend every, every uh, ministry. What about active ministry? Someone who serves in all of these different ministries. They must be saved, right? Nope, scripture doesn't say that's for fruit. Well, what about conviction of sin? Convictions, believe me, all these things are great, beloved, but these are not fruit. Conviction of sin is not a fruit of salvation. Again, there are many professing non-Christians who get convicted of their sin and they still reject Jesus Christ. They feel guilty and they ask for forgiveness for someone to forgive them. That's conviction of sin. Assurance of salvation, the time and date when you pray to Jesus Christ, that's also not a fruit of salvation. So what are the fruit and proofs of authentic true Christianity? Beloved, let's go over this really quick. Love for God, right? There's love for God in your life. There's repentance from sin. I already mentioned that. It's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. There's genuine humility. There's devotion to God's glory. There's continual prayer in their life. There's a selfless love, a love for your neighbor, a love for even for your enemies and for the lost. There's a separation from the world, right? There's no preoccupation of the cares of the world and riches that are choking out the word of God in their life. You do not love the world nor the things of the world. And last but not least, we have obedient, a spiritual growth and obedient living. Those two things. Uh, there's probably more. That's just the, several things to mention. But spiritual growth, there's constant growth in your life. You're growing in your love. You're growing in your in your uh, humility, you're growing in your patience, your joy, kindness, and so forth. You're not easily angered. You're not unstable as you were before. You, you, 
you know, you have this sustaining joy. Your joy is not uh, easily unwavered uh, by the trials. There's a pattern of obedience in your life. It's growing. So these are fruit, evidences, evidences in your life of salvation, and they're growing. Now let's take a good look again what Jesus says about this fruit. Verse 20, Jesus says, here it is. Let me read this first. Uh, verse 20, Jesus says, but those seeds that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. 100-fold, wow. Now, just to give you a perspective on this, beloved, this statement would have been, where am I going with my slides over here? This statement would have been shocking to many people in those days when he said, that bears fruit 30, uh, 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Because this element to the Jews, this element of bearing fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, would have been shocking to the Jews listening to this. Okay, this is an agricultural uh, economy setting that Jesus is talking to. He threw this shocking element into virtually every parable that he told, and this is the one here. He said 30, 60, 100 fold. Now, most of the things I've read would suggest that the average crop, the average, excuse me, the average crop would yield about seven and a half percent. You know, not even that much, not even 10%. 10%, 10 fold would be massive. It would be a massive harvest. So the Lord really blows the lid off their thinking and says 3,000%, not 10 fold, 6,000%, not 10%. So we're talking about a kind of power in the plant that is a way out of sync with what they would normally think. This is supernatural growth, beloved. It's not some itty bitty kind of growth, not some kind of, oh, got to raise the leaves. Up oh, there's the fruit. I see it. Get the magnifying glass out, Betty. I see it. No, this is miraculous, huge supernatural growth. And Jesus is teaching us that the expectation is that there will be fruit abundantly. Now, here's the first principle that we learned. Spiritual fruit in our lives should be copious. Another word for abundant. I like that word copious. It must be copious and obvious, not so scarce that it is hard to find. You know, in California, we have many lemon trees and orange trees. Maybe some of you have the privilege of growing a nice lemon tree in your backyard, an orange tree. Every year when, when it's time for these trees to produce the fruit, what happens? Some of you with these beloved trees in your backyard bring up bags and bags of these fruit to church. And you say, I got too many. They're rotting on the ground. I don't know what to do with all these lemons or these oranges, right? You give them away. Too many lemons, too many oranges. Take them, take them. However, has there ever been a year when a person doesn't come to church or comes to church and doesn't come with any oranges or lemons and say, sorry, my tree only produced two lemons this year. I, I don't know what happened. No, it's always copious with the fruit, always abundant with fruit. Every year, these trees produce, one tree produces so many lemons and oranges during harvest season. You know, it's like a few years ago, uh, my family and I were driving down Merced on the key road. And that's actually on the way, well, it used to be on the way to the Renteria's old house. But on the key road, there were some trees on there. Uh, there's one big orange tree, and we were not even you know, we were maybe a quarter mile away and my little daughter saw it. She saw all the bright orange on that tree and she pointed at it. 
we're driving on this road and my daughter said, daddy, look, an orange tree. And I was like, where? And as we got closer, I said, oh, you're right. Look at all those oranges on the tree, even on the ground, all over around the tree, six feet away from the tree. They're everywhere. It's abundant. It's copious. That's what Jesus is saying here. If you're a true believer, if you're a well-prepared soil heart, you will bear spiritual fruit in your lives and it will be copious. And it will be obvious. In fact, where else in scripture does it talk about this? In 1 John, uh, we preach a series of this. 1 John says that the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. You should be an obvious child of God, namely by your fruit. You can tell, people can tell you apart from the world basically by your lifestyle. But if you know a person who's been professing for a Christian for a long time, and there's no fruit. You know what Jesus said? He said in John 15, he said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. What does he say? He takes them to the doctor. No, he says the father takes them away. Did you hear that? Every person who claims to be in Christ and does not bear fruit, the father will cut you away and he will take you away from Christ and send you to eternal judgment. That is a terrifying passage. So the question is, how does a person bear fruit? And in verse, verse 4, Jesus says in, in John chapter 15, in verse 4, he says the answer. He says, abide in me, and I abide in you. And every few sermons, you hear me talk about what abiding looks like, right? We must abide in Christ. How do we abide in Christ? Through abiding in his word. Abide means you dwell, you remain, you keep coming back to the word of God. You long for it. You study it. You live in it. That's abiding in the word and you obey it. And when you do that, you have new life in Christ. My dear friends, if there's someone here thinking, well, I've never had uh, manifested fruit in my life. I don't think so. I'm not trying to get you here to doubt your salvation. I want us to examine our hearts. But if you're thinking, I don't even think I have a desire for the word of God. So maybe I'm not abiding in his word. If you have these thoughts in your mind, I urge you, beloved, examine your heart. Call out to Christ in prayer and ask him to save you. Maybe you have been the second soil or the third soil. The devil has probably deceived you and you thought you're saved all these years. But all along, maybe you put your faith in the prayer than you, that you said. You put your faith in the prayer rather than the Savior. I've done that. I did that for 12 years. Maybe you thought you put your faith in the Savior, but you never really let go or the cares of this world, or the riches. That's the, young rich, the rich young ruler. Maybe you're still pursuing the things of this world and you're never pursuing Jesus Christ. That's the word Christian. Christian, you know? That's why we have Christ and Christian. It means a follower of Christ. If you're not actively following Christ, you're not a Christian. Jesus clearly delineates that in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone wants to follow me, come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross daily and come after me. So I beg you to cry out to Jesus in your heart, ask him to forgive you of your sins and save you. And Jesus said in John 6, whoever comes to me, I will certainly not cast away. That's grace. He will save you. He will never turn you down. But is your heart ready? There's no unbelief. There's no doubt, no pride, no cares of this world, no riches preoccupying your heart. And when you have none of those, you come to Jesus with a prepared heart, a humbled heart, 
a heart rooted in his truth, a heart without any distractions, no preoccupations. He will give you new life and eternal life, and it will grow. It'll bear fruit abundantly, copiously, obviously to the world. That's what the prepared soil is all about. That's the first point of the sermon. My goodness, and we still have two more to talk about. That's the longest point of our sermon, by the way, because that's the main point of our parable. Now, our second point of the sermon, what is it? The powerful seed. Oh, I love this, guys. I love the word of God. If you guys know me, you know I love the word of God. The powerful seed. It is the word that has power. Let me move on here. The powerful seed. Apostle Paul says in Romans uh, 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. The power is in the word of God. It is in here, beloved. You are holding power when you are reading this. Every time you're reading this, you're holding the power. Anyone who sows the word of God, who spreads the word of God, proclaims it, teaches it. You don't have to be a pastor or a teacher or whatever. You, you don't have to be an elder in the church. You can be, you just need to be saved, right? And you share this word. Anyone who sows the word, therefore wields this awesome power of God. If you follow through the book of Acts, which uh, one of our uh, MCGs went through, you observe that you come to chapter four. What do they do? They proclaim the word of God. In chapter six, verse seven, what do they do? They proclaim the word of God. In chapter eight, what do they do? They proclaim the word of God. Chapter 11 and 12 and 13, what else do they do? Continually, they proclaim nothing but the word of God. The word of God came from their mouths, the biblical gospel. This is the seed, the living and abiding word of God, which we are given life. Now, let me give you the next point here, the next principle of our sermon, of our point, the powerful seed. And let me explain it to you. The word of God, this glorious, powerful word of God will cause organic growth and not just mechanical growth in your life. Naturally, the seed, if you take a look at seed, right? Take a look at the seed. It's so weak. It's so fragile. It's not a hammer. It's not a stick of dynamite. It's not a gun. A hammer crushes its opposition. A stick of dynamite blasts the opposition. A gun will blow away its opposition. But the seed, it seems so weak. You hold it in your hand, you can crush it. You step on it. Why would Jesus characterize the gospel, something powerful and glorious as something so weak? Now, if we think a little bit more and more about this metaphor, let's admit seeds have this paradoxical weakness and strength, beloved. Take a look at an acorn. What's an acorn? It's a small seed that falls off a massive oak tree. You can walk up to an acorn. If you're wearing your cowboy boots, you stomp on that seed. When you're walking by, you kill it. On the other hand, that acorn falls on well-prepared soil and it gets everything necessary. What grows out of it? A massive oak tree. And what does that massive oak tree produce? Hundreds, if not thousands more acorn seeds. And if all those seeds fall on right soil, what happens? (laughs) Well, but we have a forest. And did you know that one acorn has the ability to cover the earth, the entire earth in wood? Wow. That's the power of the seed. No hammer, no dynamite, no weapon of mass destruction has the power to do that. And yet you could stick that acorn and crush it on the ground. 
you can smash it with rocks, power, and yet weakness. You know, God does not force his word, his gospel upon you like a stick of dynamite. He doesn't hold the gospel upon your head like a gun. Repent, right? He doesn't do that. People reject the word of God every day. They step on it. They swamp, they smash it with their unbelief. They throw the seed out the window. They crush it with their pride. They continually suppress the truth of, with their unrighteousness. However, if your heart is prepared and you receive the word of God, the word of God is powerful. It becomes so powerful that it gives you new life and it continues to produce organic growth. You become like a massive tree with roots that are so deep into the ground. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever seen the aftermath of a car accident where a car was wrapped around a massive tree. And this car is completely total. You cannot repair it at all. But you look at that tree after they clean everything mess up. Looks like there's no, you never would guess in the, in the hundred years that there was a car accident on that tree. Think about how much energy must be exerted to remove that tree. How much energy does it take to remove that tree? How much energy and power to keep that tree alive during that accident? That tree has organic growth, beloved. That is the power of the seed. The metaphor here, power of the word, the power of the seed of the word of God, the power of the gospel unto salvation, it causes, it changes, it causes new life, organic growth in the believers. Are you growing, beloved? You will be immovable. Nothing in this life no trial, no plague, no COVID, no difficult circumstances will uproot you because, and cause you to walk away from the faith. So the word will cause organic growth and not just mechanical growth in your life. You will grow copious fruit, abundant fruit. You'll be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water. Psalm 1, this organic growth is, is the spiritual growth that can only be caused by feeding off the word of God. You get your roots down into the word and you'll be a stable man, a stable woman. Now, what about that other word there, Pastor Stephen? I see you guys looking at mechanical. What is that word mechanical growth? What's mechanical growth? I see you're using that as a, as a contrast to organic growth. Let me give you a quick, simple illustration there. Mechanical growth. Let's say you guys uh, and ladies, I like to do work on houses. You like to build houses, maybe. You take a brick, you throw one brick down in front of you. What do you got? You got a brick. <laughs> You take, let's say you take a few more bricks and you throw those bricks in front of you. What do you got? You got a pile of bricks. Let's say, let's say you tell Johnny to back his truck full of bricks and you dump all these bricks on top of those bricks. What do you got? You got a pile of bricks growing in front of you. But you see, these, this pile of bricks is not growing organically. It's growing mechanically. It's not growing like a tree grows. It's growing mechanically because you're simply placing brick upon brick upon brick and that's a good way to keep yourself busy. As simply stated in this metaphor, in this metaphor, mechanical growth is just busyness. It's not just any kind of busyness. It's busyness of this world, maybe busyness doing the things of God, and you're growing in it. But this power of the seed, this power of the word of God will give you life, new life, organic life. You will bear fruit and it will change you life, and people will notice it. It will be obvious. And this word of God will be manifested in your life when the busyness of the things of this world change into the busyness of the things of God. Examine your life. Are the busyness of the are the busy things of your life 
the things of God or the things of this world. You're no longer seeking your own kingdom. You're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You're not so caught up and preoccupied with the things of this world, whether you're caught up in doing the things of, of ministry, the things of the gospel, the things of the kingdom, highly involved in making disciples. You, 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 you fret, you're concerned about when people leave the church, when people are not walking in the Lord. That's the busyness that comes from organic growth, fruit in your life. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 23, he says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. This word of God is a seed that is imperishable. If planted in the prepared soil of fertile hearts, it will spring up new life and it will keep growing and growing and growing. It is powerful. I mean, look at all the martyrs. Look at Stephen uh, in, in Acts chapter 7. He was powerful. They could not stand him. They stoned him to death. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The word of God is described as living and active. It is living, and therefore it is living because it can give life. It is active, meaning it changes things continually. It will change your life completely and continually. Now, G. Campbell Morgan, G. Campbell Morgan, uh, let me put his name up here. Let me see if I have it here. G. Campbell Morgan. I put his name up there so you can look him up on the internet if you don't know him. I highly recommend listening or reading his sermons and his books. He's a well-known British pastor in the 19th century. Now, if names of historical people mean anything to you, he was friends with Charles Spurgeon. And his successor was another famous preacher known as Martin Lloyd-Jones. That's right, the doctor. He was a physician and a pastor. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Anyways, G. G. Campbell Morgan tells a very interesting story. He was in Italy once, and he went into a graveyard. Now, this was a kind of a tourist attraction place because there was one, one very, very old grave, centuries old, an old grave in this, in this uh, graveyard. It was either the king, of, a grave of a king or a wealthy person. I can't remember. But otherwise, anyways, this was an enormous tomb. There was a thick slab of marble over this grave, huge and thick. However, before the slab of marble was placed down onto the ground, apparently there happened to be an acorn that fell down into the grave. And over the years, somehow, this acorn, it got fed water and it had grown up and it found its way out of one side. And then the other side, it got bigger and bigger. Eventually, it became this massive tree. And over the centuries, it had destroyed and and permeated this marble slab, and it rolled out into shattered pieces. You ever walk on a sidewalk and you see some shattered concrete because you look, oh, these roofs of this tree are destroying this concrete. That's the power of the seed. Amazing. Isn't that an amazing picture? An acorn, a seed, something you drop it, you drop it underneath a little concrete. You think, ha ha, we covered this seed. Over the years, that seed, if, if watered correctly, you know, it'll, it'll destroy, it'll release power. Something a stampede of horses can never do. It is the seed of God, God's word. It has power to give life, power to produce organic and mechanical growth too. This is one of the reasons why Jesus characterized the word of God, the gospel as a seed. It gives life and it changes things completely. 
Okay, so we looked at the prepared soil. We looked at the powerful seed, the word of God. And last but not least, we look at, drum roll, the patient sower. The patient sower. Jesus says in verse 3, the sower sows the word. The sower sows the word. We know what the sower is. Beloved, the sower is anybody who wants to spread the word of God. In the other parable, it's Jesus. But the sower is anybody who gives the message of the gospel to an unbeliever. I think all of you have been there. You know, you're with a family member during the holidays. You're thinking, man, I really want my, excuse me, my loved one here to come to Christ. I don't want them to burn. I don't want them to die eternally in hell. I want them to come to know the joys of the gospel, right? And you talk to them whatever way you can, slowly, sincerely, and with meekness and reverence, right? You're sowing the word. You're, you're a sower. Even a child can be a sower. Isn't that amazing? Even a young little child, but they can talk and they can understand the gospel. They have the potential to sow the awesome power of the word of God. In your, in your new life as a Christian, whenever you're spreading the word of God to people around you, you're talking about the Bible, wherever there's at school, at work, your neighbors, when you're watering the grass, you are sowing, you're a sower. But please notice, folks, it doesn't tell us anything about the style of the sower, right? It doesn't talk about how he sows other than he just sows. And the word here, sow, the verb simply means to disseminate, to scatter, you're scattering the seed all over the place, all around you. You're doing it in a non-discriminating way. You don't say, whoops, I better not sow the seed over there. The soil doesn't look so good over there, so I'm going to save some seed. No, that's the wrong attitude. When you sow the seed, you scatter it everywhere, indiscriminately, even more. Jesus doesn't tell us that this sower, this farmer gets out all these great contraptions and machines that help him sow the seed, and he puts it in a seed-spitting gun that shoots the seed miles away and forces it into the ground. You know, it doesn't do any of that. In other words, the sower is not focused on methods and strategies on sowing the seed. You know, we have a lot of churches today focused, so focused on methods and programs to attract people to come to church. I'm not talking about ministries. Ministries are good and important. I'm talking about methods and programs. I mean, that's great. They mean well. However, God did not design ministry and church to be that way. First of all, Jesus said that he will build his church. And how does he do it? He uses people. He uses his people. His people do it through the faithful spreading proclamation of the word. He does it through the people who spread the word indiscriminately. That's a hard word to say. Indiscriminately. He does it through the faithful proclamation and faithful teaching of his word. He does it through disciple making, through all of us. The powerful seed, the word of God is faithfully proclaimed, not just on church on Sundays, Sunday mornings, but even at small groups, Bible studies, in the lives of church members, in your homes, at your work. When the word is sown everywhere like that, beloved, that is when Jesus will build his church. We sow the word of God everywhere, through every ministry, through the life of every member of the church. We don't focus on trying to get the best uh, leaders in the church, the best musicians in our praise team to attract more people in the church. I mean, that is a method and a program attempting to build the church of Christ mechanically. Although it is nice to have excellent musicians, 
it's certainly not wrong to have to have them. I mean, we need them. Thank you, Jeff and Tall Dan and, and Leah and others, Ashley, for leading the rest of us in praise songs. But by all means, they are not the means on how a church grows. Having skilled musicians, skilled speakers and teachers, people skilled with, uh, with children, they are not the means per se on how the church grows. Ultimately, it is the power of the seed, the power of the word, and we are to spread it, sow it everywhere. It is the abundant life. It is the word of God that is implanted in you that attracts people to church. It is your lifestyle that attracts people to church, not methods. They see your changed life. They see your love for something else other than your love for this world. What is it? Your love for Christ. They see the unwavering peace of God that surpasses all understanding. And they look at you and like, man, this person's not worried about the COVID. They're not worried about anything. They're focused. Their life is together. And the testimony of God's word in your life, the faithful teaching and spreading of God's word, we sow the seed everywhere, beloved. It doesn't mean we're lacking in care or lacking in judgment. It means we are not trying to produce the results ourselves because we don't produce results at all in any ministry. We don't produce the results when the gospel is spread. It is not our responsibility. So here's the last point, uh, the last principle of our last points. The results of our ministry are dependent on God and not on man. We see this all over scripture, beloved. Let me give you just one reference. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 and 7, Apostle Paul says this about church ministry. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. It is God who causes the growth. It is God who causes the results. We simply need to be faithful in spreading the word indiscriminately. God, the word of God, spreading it, making disciples. That's the last words that Jesus Christ gave, the last command that he gave to the church before he went to heaven, the Great Commission. We do our part and wait for Christ to do his part, to cause the increase. And that is why I call the last point, the patient sower, the patient sower. You faithfully sow the word and you patiently wait for God to produce the results. You know, James chapter five, verse seven says this. Let me see if I have it here. I don't have it here, but it says this. The farmer waits for the precious produce, uh, for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. And it seems to me, again, strikingly so many times, what we do is simply defined in scripture. We give people the word of God. That's what we do. We just give people the word of God, like this patient farmer. This is why Pastor Rick, Pastor Raph, and myself, this is why we preach the way we preach. We simply open the Bible, right? We open the Bible and we give it to you. We, we explain the word of God to you. We, we preach what the word of God says. We don't uh, give sermons to you that you know, that tell you five ways to become a better husband, five ways to be a better you. Of course, you know, we proclaim the gospel. I'm sure there are, there are elements in sermons that will help you to be a better husband, maybe, or to be a better Christian. But we faithfully want to proclaim what the word says. Uh, we don't need to rely on techniques, um, on marketing strategies, or man-made programs to evangelize or to grow our church. Jesus Christ has given us a simple directive. He says, make disciples. And later in the New Testament, 
Paul expounds on disciple making. It's all over the New Testament. Beloved, let me close with this, okay? Let me close with this illustration because I know uh, your kitchen is filled with that glorious odor of lunch. There are many man-made inventions in our time that we boast about them, right? We have a lot of man-made inventions. The Apple iPhone. We have the, the nuclear warheads. I don't know why we would boast about that. We have the great electronic piano that sounds like a real piano. We have the great Tesla. We have solar power things. We have jets and computers, right? We boast about these things. We boast about all these techno technological advancements. Look how far along we've come with this technology. And it's great. I'm not completely ragging on these things. But you see, God creates natural gas and man produces synthetic gas. God creates plants and trees and grass. Mankind reproduce many synthetic plants and grass. You know, you walk in your neighborhood and you might see synthetic grass. Okay. But let me tell you something, beloved. You, can, you cannot produce a synthetic seed that will produce life. It's impossible. It'll never happen. I don't care how genius of a scientist you are. You can never produce a seed that will produce organic life. Only God can create the seed that gives life. The truth is life. Is it not? The word of God is life. When you read it and you have a prepared heart and it sinks in, you will be born again. You will be changed by the word of truth. You're given life by the word of truth. And so we proclaim this word of truth. That's our calling. And we expect negative results. We expect positive responses, positive results. We don't make judgments, prejudgments. We don't think that people are not capable of receiving the word of God. You give them the word of God. That's not our job to make judgments. Faithfully and indiscriminately sow the word of God to everyone. This is the parable of the soils, beloved. It is not just a parable of how people respond to the word of God, but how people respond to Jesus. Jesus did not come to earth as a hammer. Jesus did not come to earth as a stick of dynamite. Thank goodness. Jesus did not come to earth as an automatic machine gun. He came not to judge, but to be judged. Not to be strong and almighty, but to be weak and to die. Because seeds only release their power when they fall into the ground and die. If Jesus had come as a sword, we'd all be dead. If Jesus had come as a hammer or as, as an explosive dynamite, we're all in trouble. We've all been dead meat, but Jesus came as the ultimate seed. Scripture talks about that. He's the ultimate seed. And he proved that when he is buried in the ground for three days and he came back to life and resurrected and ascended into heaven, he has the power to give resurrection life to you, to me, to everyone who believes on his name. And do you believe on his powerful, glorious name, beloved? Do you? If you do, Jesus said, you will have eternal life. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful parable. Thank you for uh, the life, the profound, uh, true, spiritual truths in such this a simple story of the sower, of, of, the, of the soil, of the sower, the seed, and your powerful seed, Lord. We, we look at this, we read it over and over again and find it breathtaking for those of us who understand it, for those of us who have given us new life. I pray that is true for all of us today, all of us who are uh, professed to be part of the body of Christ, to be Christians uh, who are part of Kaleo. I pray that we would be faithful 
to sow the word of God indiscriminately and faithfully to all those around us. Thank you for the saints we have here. Uh, bless our lunch now and the rest of our day. We pray all these things for your glory and for our greatest good. Amen. Amen.